Any better? Ooh, that's much better. Well, good morning, friends. And actually, may I call you friends? Yes? Thank you. Thank you. Some of you I know and love very well. Some of you I only know a little. Some of you I've yet to have the joy of meeting at all. Uh, this morning, we're going to take the, a look at uh, one unique friendship. Um, but that leads me to question, what is a friend? I can think of some classic examples of friendship. One's even in my own life. I know a guy by the name of Jimmy Flaherty. I knew him, first met him in kindergarten, 57 years ago. Jim Flaherty has been, has been one of my greatest friends of my life. I don't see him as much or speak to him as much as I should. If I could pick up the phone right now and call him, we would pick up exactly where we are. There's no holds barred, nothing that we could not share. One of my greatest friends. A uh, lot of examples in life. You could think of George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette. You could think of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. How about Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan? <laughs> Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Uh, Ian, how about Tom Brady and, sorry dude, Ron Gonkowski? Sorry, man. Uh, there's a lot of examples in every discipline of life. The American Heritage Dictionary gives uh, several definitions for a friend. Um, a person that one knows, likes, and trusts. Another is an acquaintance. Another is a person with whom one is allied in a struggle or a cause. Another dictionary describes a friend as a person whom one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection. Fans of Stranger Things understand that friends don't lie. And I think of all those, you know, all those are true, but I think they all fall a little short. I've always viewed friendship as being sort of a spectrum. Um, you know, and if you think of it as a scale from like zero to 10, you know, zero would be the people who we've never met or who we've just never cracked the ice with. Tens would be like our uber BFF, you know, and, you know, our ultimate friend. And uh, most of us, most of the people that we know in our lives would fall somewhere in the middle uh, on that spectrum. Um, you know, there's those of us here who, maybe I know your face, we wave at each other in the foyer, you know, and we're kind of like a one. We haven't even, you know, if we take the next step, maybe, we learn each other's names and where we live and what our life situation is, you know, we might move up a little bit on that scale. Maybe we choose to, uh, you know, go out to dinner, share a cup of coffee, you know, attend youth group together, maybe something bigger, go to ASB. Those experiences, that spending time together, moves us up on that scale of friendship. Um, friends are there for us. They know us, they support us. The Bible says that we should weep with those who weep and we should rejoice with those who rejoice. And who do we do that with except for those who are dear to us? Who are our friends? The Bible talks about friendship in a number of ways. Job spoke about the friendship of God being upon his tent. Proverbs 18.24 uh, says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. James 4.4 gives us a warning about friendship. He says that friendship with the world is enmity or in opposition to God. No greater authority than Jesus himself said in John 15 that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
So I will suggest that friendship is a special and a precious thing, something not to be made lightly, not to cast away lightly. It involves commitment and vulnerability. This morning, we're going to take a look at a very unique friendship, the one between God the Father and a man called Abram, later to be renamed by God himself as Abraham. And whereas the Bible describes Moses as God's servant and King David as a man after God's own heart, Abraham is the only person in the Bible who is described as God's friend. In Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, King Jehoshaphat is recorded as praying and reminding God that he gave the land of Israel, quote, forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. The prophet Isaiah, speaking for God in chapter 41, verse 8, states, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And the apostle James in chapter 2, verse 23, of his letter notes that Abraham was called a friend of God. So the story of Abram is worthy of our attention. But before we read today's passage, a little background and context on what brings us to it, because the importance of Abraham goes all the way back to the beginning of history as we know it. Okay? You know, most of us know, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? He filled the earth with his creation. He created mankind in his own image. He gave man autonomy and freedom. Freedom led to disobedience. Disobedience led sin into the world. And, the, and God's creation was separated from him by that sin. Okay? We had the fall of man. We had Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. We had a whole bunch of bad things happen. Cain kills his brother Abel. And the pervasive corruption of mankind ensued. Genesis 6-5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That led to God's great judgment in the flood and the story of Noah and how God spared Noah's family and made a promise to Noah to never again destroy the earth by flood. But all wasn't well. Noah's family repopulated the earth, uh, but the pridefulness of man continued and God intervened uh, at what became known as the Tower of Babel, uh, where God confused the languages of man and he scattered mankind all over the earth. And thus, we are where we are today. That brings us to Genesis chapters 12 through 14, where God does a new thing. Okay? He calls a single man, Abram the Chaldean, and tells him to leave his father's house to go to an unknown land that he will show him. And God promises Abram to make him great, to bless him, to make a great nation through him. And in Genesis 12, 3, that Abram will bless all the families of the earth. That sounds awesome. So Abram goes to Canaan. God speaks to him a second time and promises to give Canaan to Abram's descendants. And in response, Abram builds an altar and worships God. But still, all things don't go smoothly. Along comes a famine. Abram decides on his own to uh, go to Egypt for help. He runs into trouble with Pharaoh. Uh, God extricates him. Abram heads back towards Canaan. He and his nephew Lot, who were two pretty rich guys, they had a lot of stuff at that time, they separated. Lot goes to Sodom. Abram goes in the other direction. God speaks to Abram a third time, telling him to look over the land around him and promising again to give it to his descendants. Then there's this huge war. Five kings against four kings. Uh, the enemies of Sodom sack the city. Uh, carry away all the goods and some of the survivors, including Lot and his family. Uh, 
Uh, word of this comes to Abram. Uh, Abram gathers up 318 men, goes in pursuit of these armies, and somehow wins an overwhelming victory. Uh, he brings back all of the goods and all, and all the survivors, including Lot and his family. He has this mysterious meeting with a man called Melchizedek, who is described as a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. He blesses Abram, and Abram gives him one-tenth of all the spoils that he's just come back with. Uh, the king of Sodom also honors Abram, uh, tells him to leave uh, the people with him, but to take all the remaining goods for yourself, you know, your reward for what you've done. Uh, but Abram graciously declines. All that brings us to Genesis 15. Uh, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or look it up on your app, or it is, I believe, printed in your order of worship. Um, and you may follow along as I read it, uh, but before that, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, you're the sovereign king over all things. You are the savior and redeemer of all things. Father, we are grateful for this time that you give us now. We're grateful for your word. Uh, we invite your spirit into this place uh, to speak through your servant now and to open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds to hear what you would have to say to us today. In Jesus' name. And just one moment. So Genesis 15, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 19. I think you're, what's printed in the order of worship probably goes through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and, each, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to, you, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates." I've entitled this morning's sermon, A Journey 
of friendship, and we're going to look at four different elements of this passage, how God sticks by his friend, how God speaks with his friend, how God honors his friend, and finally, how God commits to his friend. Um, so verse 1 starts with the words, after these things, meaning after all that Abram has just gone through that we just talked about, God addresses Abram a fourth time. This time, however, it's a little different. In each of the first three encounters, the, the text says that God said. This time, however, uh, it says that the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is the first mention in the Bible of the word of the Lord coming, and it came in a vision. Perhaps that's a sign of some physical manifestation of God's presence. Perhaps that itself is unnerving to Abram, for God tells him to fear not. And then God calls him by name. Our name is who we are. And what is more indicative of a friend uh, than to call someone by their name? You know, it lets them know that I see you. I know you. And God then tells Abram two things. I am your shield and that your reward shall be very great. Uh, now picture that Abram has literally just come from a horrific battlefield probably with his own shield, where a number of men likely died in a brutal fashion. Abram was a witness to all of this. And in this day and age, we understand the trauma that combat can cause, the PTSD. Uh, was Abram still in horror of that day? Perhaps a near miss of his own death? Yeah. Or fear of revenge by any of the kings whom he just attacked? Psalm 31.7 uh, reads, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction and have known the troubles of my soul. And just so, God reminds Abram of who his true shield and protector is. God also tells Abram that your reward shall be very great. Now picture again what Abram has just done. Okay, Having won the battle and all that honor and praise, he turns down the spoils that he could have rightly claimed. Why? Okay. Because Sodom was just a reminder to Abram as to where his riches truly are. Okay. God is not just our rewarder. God is our reward. Okay. Now, Abram was already a wealthy man, but with all that God had given him and saved him from, maybe now he's beginning to see what Matthew Henry summed up when he wrote, the gifts of God's common providence are not hardly comparable with those of God's covenant love. Okay, really meaning, you know, what God gives us is nowhere near as good as God himself. Okay, Paul described this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and he wrote, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God prepared, all, all that God prepared for those who love him. God is prepared to reward us with great things that we haven't even conceived of. And he was prepared to do that for Abram. That's what friends do. But chapter 15 is more than God making these incredible statements to Abram. It's an entire personal conversation over the course of an entire day okay. in which pra the practicality of Abram is revealed. He addresses God reverently in verses 2 and 3, but he immediately jumps in to say that, hey, I don't have kids. My only heir is my chief servant, and you promised me and you still haven't done what you said. Sounds a little snarky. But people are willing to share their heartaches with their friends. 
Okay? They don't have to be sugary nice all the time. And just as we can share our heartaches and our longings with our one true friend. Um, excuse me. In Psalm 142.2, the psalmist writes, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. And that's what Abram is doing here. Matthew Henry also wrote, though we must never complain of God, we have leave to complain to him. God not only loves us, he wants us to bring our longings and fears before him. That's where he meets us. Okay? His ear is always open. Now, Abram is worried. He was 75 years old when he began his journey of walking with the Lord. He and his wife, Sarai, are getting older. God promised to make a great nation of Abram in both chapters 12 and 13 of Genesis, and so far, nothing. Abram seems to imply that it must be God's plan for the promised child to be an adopted child, and that that would not be as good. How often does our unbelief conclude that promised mercies delayed are mercies permanently denied? And that's where Abram seems to be coming from when he says, what will you give me? Abram is fixated on having a son of his own, and he's lost comfort in any other riches or enjoyments. Yet, perhaps Abram's seeming complaint is really a sign of his growing faith, saying, in effect, God, you and your promises are all that matter to me. Perhaps he was thinking what we should be thinking ourselves today. What is all this without Christ? But we should never find weariness of waiting for God's timing. God is better than our fear. He gives mercies when we have long ago despaired of them. Abram feared having no child. God had promised to make him a great nation, that his family would bless all the nations of the earth. In reality, that Abram had God's assurance of his connection with the Messiah. He has wealth, victory, honor. But where he is in the dark about the main matter, all that is nothing to him. Let that be a lesson to us all. Until we have comfortable evidence of our connection to Christ and the new covenant, we should not be resting and satisfied with anything else. Is that the true depth of Abram's complaint? Perhaps so. For Abram deals, deals gently with, uh, or excuse me, for God deals gently with Abram, as with a friend, telling him that he will indeed have an heir from his own body. The word of the Lord comes to Abram again in verse 4, and in verse 5, God takes Abram outside. Can't you just picture the gentle arm of God leading Abram out of his tent and under the night sky? Uh, we've just recently launched the Webb Space Telescope. Anybody seen any of those images? Absolutely spectacular. Spectacular. But do you think that even the Webb Space Telescope can count every star? I doubt it. And I doubt that Abram could count every star on that uh, long ago night. In chapter 13, verse 6, God had promised Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And here in 15.5, he tells him that they will be as numerous as the stars. Uh, I think there's intentionality about that change of metaphor. Uh, the dust of the earth represents uh, Abram's physical seed, okay? The nation of Israel by his blood. But the stars of heaven represent Abram's spiritual seed, okay? The church of Christ by faith. 
Romans 9, 8 says that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And referring to the stars, God tells Abram that so shall your descendants be. Now more on that conversation later. For now, God honors his friend. And in verse 6, we find the bedrock of Christianity, where it is recorded that Abram believed the Lord and he, meaning God, counted it to him as righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9 read, Even so, Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And again, Romans 4, chapters 9, or excuse me, verses uh, chapter 4, 9 through 25 read, And without becoming weak in faith, he, meaning Abram, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, Sarah was the new name for Sarai, Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abram did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, meaning Abram, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? It means that every believer is justified before God just as Abram was. Okay? Not because of anything we have done, not because of what we are due, but because of faith. If Abram, was, who was so rich in good works, was justified only by his faith, how much more are we justified who are so poor in those works? May the Lord work out that kind of faith in each one of us. Now in verse 7, God restates the, his promise to Abram to give him descendants or to give his descendants the land of Canaan. And Abram's practicality surfaces again. How am I to know it? He doesn't ask out of distrust. He's asking for help with his unbelief. And just as a friend would, God meets Abram right where he is. He seals the covenant in a manner that Abram understands. He tells Abram that we're going to seal this deal in a way in which solemn contracts are made in your day. The two parties would sacrifice animals. They would literally cut them in half, spread the pieces apart, make a path in between them, and the parties making the agreement would walk together in between the pieces. What the ceremony basically said was, you know what, let it be done to me as these animals. Let me be cut in two and separated if I fail to live up to my part of our bargain. So Abram gets and prepares the sacrifice. Right. Uh, sorry. Uh, and then he sits, he watches, and he waits for God to act. Verse 12 says that this particular ceremony didn't start until after the sun went down. And if you remember, this day started with God walking Abram outside to look at the stars before the sun came up. 
So this conversation, preparation, and waiting has literally been going on for an entire day. Imagine Abram's growing excitement, okay, waiting for the fulfillment of the vision, his expectations rising, knowing that at the end, God is going to speak to him. And in verse 11, we see how the birds of prey have to be driven away from the sacrifice by Abram. Not only showing us the very reality of this situation, because if any of you have seen you know, roadkill out there, you know what the birds do, uh, but, but really showing us a powerful spiritual lesson that when vain things come upon our own spiritual sacrifices, we have to drive those away and remain focused on the Lord. Okay. That in verse 12, a great sleep and darkness come upon Abram. I don't think it was darkness in a bad way. Um, I think we should view this darkness as more of God's way of removing any of the outside distractions from Abram's mind. Uh, a darkness by design to strike awe in Abram. Uh, think of it as being a divine state that he was placed in so that his focus would be totally upon God. And now, Abram's also paralyzed and set aside. Only God will pass between the sacrifices. For the covenant is all on God. He's the one doing the promising, okay? Abram's role is only believing. To have Abram share the walking with God would have bred contempt in Abram's being for others who were outside of that special friendship of God's. It's a picture, really, of what happened on the cross of Calvary. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I'm paralyzed by sin today, just as all of us are. But God the Father and God the Son made a contract Jesus, you sacrifice your life, and I will forgive their sin. And Christ's final response to that discussion was, it is finished. God now prophecies about the future of Abram's descendants, how they will be strangers in a land not their own, how they will be enslaved for 400 years, how the nation who enslaves them will be punished, how they will be enriched upon their deliverance. So all this is a foreshadowing of the Israelites going to Egypt, living in slavery until God uses Moses to deliver them. But how like us? Okay? Because if you believe in what Jesus' sacrifice has done for you, then you are an heir of heaven. But first, you were a stranger in this alien land here. But how you and I will be enriched upon our deliverance from here. But that earthly fate is not Abram's. For he will have a long life and he will be buried in peace. And it's an interesting aside in, in verse 16 that God gives even the Amorites a nation which will be removed from Canaan for their sinfulness 400 more years to find God. God even saying that their iniquity is not yet complete. But then comes the culmination of the Abrahamic covenant in verses 17 through 19 where we have a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces of the sacrifice. The text doesn't really give us much clue as to what these are, but consider how Hebrews 12.29 says that our God is a consuming fire. That God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. That God led the Israelites on their exodus with a pillar of fire. Many theologians consider that both of these elements uh, represent Christ. The fire pot representing Christ's judgment and the torch representing Christ's salvation as the light of the world. We say this ourselves every week when we recite the Apostles' Creed. And so this seemingly odd ceremony intimates that God's covenants with mankind are made by sacrifice, by Christ 
who was our great sacrifice. There is no agreement without atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says, and according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But finally, the Lord ensures that every last detail is attended to. He not only establishes the boundaries of the land, which he had promised to Abram in Genesis 13, from the Nile now to the Euphrates, but with one critical difference. Up until now, God, whenever God had spoken to Abram about the promised land, he always referred to it as the land which I will give you. Now the tenor changes and God says, I give this land. When God claims that an issue is final, it is certain and it will not be revoked. It is as sure as the promise of John 3.36, where it reads, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, it's as sure as every believer today, we are in heaven now as surely as we have always, already arrived. What a journey of friendship that God has undertaken with Abram. God has such enormous and eternal plans for his creation. Abram is simply a practical man. To him, either land without an heir or heirs without a land would be a hope only half fulfilled. God gives his friend both. Consider the words of Jesus in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Look at all that God has already done for us. His business is all about showering his grace lavishly upon his friends. So we need to ask ourselves, Am I God's friend? If you are, then he will fulfill your every need and desire in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. He is the source and fulfillment and redeemer of all things. And just as for Abram, he is our shield. He is our reward. And he is our friend. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for uh, what you have done to redeem it. How you worked with a single man to make a family, to make a nation, to lead to the Messiah, to birth your church, to change all of history, to change the world. Father, we long for your continued hand in our lives, guiding us along your perfect path. In Jesus' name we pray.